In about the early 1990s, my life looked like this. I was probably a sophomore in college. I've never really told you my story recently, so I just want to tell you my story. So I was living in Norfolk, Virginia. I graduated from high school. I was probably a sophomore, and my life was basically uh, like this pile of logs here. I'd made a mess of my life. I'm just a, a very immoral person. Uh, the way that I was living, things that I was doing, things that I said I would never do, I was beginning to do. And a gal by the name of Lisa began to write me and tell me about Jesus. Now, what's interesting about her is I knew her in, when I was in sixth and seventh grade. So whatever would prompt her to be to write, she just started writing me and telling me about Jesus. And over a period of two years, she would write to me. And my life basically just continued to disintegrate. I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse. And I, I got to a point where I finally left Old Dominion University. It was in Norfolk, Virginia. And I had one semester left before graduation, and I ended up moving to Southern California, where she was at, and that is where I put my faith and my trust in Jesus. That's where Jesus became the foundation of my life. By putting my faith and my trust in him, I invited Jesus to be the Lord of my life and to make my life absolutely different. So that's what I did. But then I hit a crisis point. Something happened with this little church. They weren't necessarily theologically sound in my mind, so I hit kind of a crisis point, and I went and visited my aunt and uncle, who live about 100 miles away. So I went to visit them, and they said, listen, we've been praying that someone in our family would come back to the faith. But our suggestion would be to you to go to Long Beach and go to Grace Brethren Church in Long Beach, California. And the reason we want you to go there, because a pastor by the name of Dr. David Hawking is there. So that's what I did. I listened to them, and I went to this church, Grace Brethren Church in Long Beach, California, and David Hawking was there. And David Hawking was the pastor at that time. And what David Hawking did upon my commitment to Christ as the cornerstone, he gave me something that absolutely transformed my life. And it was this, a love for the word of God. I loved listening to Pastor Dave preach every Sunday. I loved hearing him speaking about the word of God and what it did to my heart and what it did to my soul. And so that's what I did. Every Sunday morning, I was involved in church and I would come and he would talk about what it meant to possess eternal life. He would talk about things like John 3.16. He would talk about pain and suffering and every element, every doctrine that he brought out, whether it be pain and suffering, whether it be life and death, heaven and hell, the end times, Jesus returning, he built into my life an incredible theology based upon the word of God, based upon who Jesus is and what he is. And that become the foundation for my life. And I loved listening to him because he poured into my life and it radically changed who I was on the inside. Even my mother and my grandparents, who I was living with at the time, they said, you know what? There is something different about you. You have gone through a radical change. And it was because of what Pastor Dave did in teaching and preaching the word of God. And what he actually did was this. He gave me a new understanding of my identity in Jesus Christ. In other words, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, your life is forever changed. You're not the same kind of person. Behold, new things have come. I'm new on the inside. And that's what happened to me. I was given a new identity in Jesus Christ. And Pastor David instilled into me the core foundation of what it meant to be in Christ. And I loved it. And I have always gone back to that foundation of what it means. And what I want to do this morning is this. I want to invite you to turn your Bible. We're going to look at a text from, uh, from Peter. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, as we continue our series contending for the faith. What I want to do this morning is simply this. I'm going to look at our identity in Christ. Who are we in Jesus Christ? See, one of the other issues that people have with Christianity, why they deconstruct and why they walk away from the faith, one of the other main issues is this. They look at the church and go, you know, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. That's all you are. You're not any different than anyone else out there. You have problems. Maybe they've been hurt in the church. Maybe they've been hurt by somebody in the church. Or maybe they've seen some of the things going on in the news the last two or three years. They're going, look at the church. The church is just a big mess. Look at all of these people proclaiming these things. And yet their lives are their lives a mess. Or maybe they turn to one of these TV preachers and they're always asking for money. And they have this idea of, see, Christianity, the, the church is just an absolute mess. What I would say is this, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of things that are challenging in the church. Sometimes our lives are messy, but that doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change our identity in Christ because of what Christ does for us on the inside. Because of who Jesus is, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the Apostle Peter because he went through a radical change, right? He went through a new identity. Simon, I'm going to give you the name Peter, and I'm going to build my church upon you. You are the rock. I'm going to build my church upon you. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. As you go out and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, lives are going to be changed. And when you look at 1 Peter, the beauty about 1 Peter, you know what I love about 1 Peter? It just shows the beauty of the church. And maybe you look around and you go, wow, this is the church? Peter had a high and exalted view of the people in the church, not a building, but the people in the church. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, and you've been you chosen and you're precious to Jesus. That's what the church really is. In chapter 2, verse 5, it says we are living stones, offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. Do you see yourself as a person who's offering the way that I live my life, day in and out? I'm offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. He goes on to say that we are a spiritual house. We are living stones as a spiritual house, and we are being built into a spiritual priesthood based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Listen, we're a community. We're family. And Peter was writing to believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, most likely scattered because of their faith and their trust in Jesus. Persecution had come. Roman Empire. Nero was around. A lot of things are going on, and maybe the church had to go underground, and maybe these People are feeling the heat of what it meant to be a Christ follower. And what Peter does is he wants to say, listen, in the midst of the pain and the suffering, in the midst of the persecution that's out there, in the midst of all of this yuckiness, what I want to do is this. I want to remind you of who you are on the inside. And maybe you're facing difficulties. Maybe you're facing challenges. Maybe you walked in here this morning and life is incredibly difficult. What Peter's going to show us is what it means for us to have our identity grounded in the unique person of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And the words that he used, the terminology that he used are absolutely phenomenal. They're just beautiful. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me just read the text. It's two short verses. Notice how he begins. But you. It's always a contrast. But you. You're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his more marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord from Peter. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that some 30, 35 years ago, you transformed my life and opened my eyes to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. You took me from darkness into light. And Father, I know that that is true of almost everybody in this room this morning. Thank you for 
who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for opening our eyes to the reality of who Jesus is. And now we are changed people. Father, in many ways, we are scattered. When we leave here, we are scattered all throughout this area. And Father, as you are scattered children, we want to live as light in the midst of darkness. So Father, this morning, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to the reality of our true identity in Jesus. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is two things I want to look at. First of all, our identity. What Peter does is Peter looks on the identity of God's people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and he takes that identity and he brings it forth into this idea of a new identity in Jesus. So he looks back, but he looks forward to what we have in the reality of Jesus Christ. And then he says, listen, because of who you are, your new identity is this. Advertise Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Live for Jesus in such a way that you become a billboard for the nature and the character of who Jesus is and what he's done specifically in your life. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's begin. God has given us a new identity. Look again at verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. When you look at the broader context of chapter 2, what Peter's doing is this. When he says, but you, and then when he says in verse 10, but now, but now, when he tends to think, he's offering a contrast. Basically saying, listen, is Jesus this precious cornerstone in your life? Or are you like all of these people, maybe in the Old Testament, maybe people in the church, who basically rejected Jesus? You know who he is. You know his name, but he's not precious to you. You haven't bought into the idea that you need to have your life cleansed. So what Peter's doing is he's offering this contrast, what it means to have Jesus as someone precious and just someone who maybe he's on the fence with Jesus. They come to church and they do this, but that they really haven't bought into putting their faith and their trust in Jesus. Listen, if you're on the fence with Jesus, that's not a good place to be. What I would suggest to you is, is look at the reality of who Jesus, look at what he's taught us, look at all the wonderful ways that he's lived his life and put your faith and your trust in Jesus because that's what Peter wants to do. He wants to move these people. He wants to remind them of their identity in Jesus Christ. And what he does is he takes this terminology from the Old Testament, all of these Old Testament words, the way that they were in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and he brings them all the way into the forefront. He says, this is who we now are in Christ. This is who you were in the past as God's chosen people in the Old Testament. But now I want to take that terminology and I want to explain it a little bit. I want to show you what it means to possess this new identity in Jesus. Let me ask, is Jesus precious to you? Is he precious to you? That's what Peter's going to get to here. The preciousness of our faith. So let's just look at this. What is our new identity in Jesus Christ? Number one is this. You're recipients of grace. You and I are recipients of God's undeserved grace. I was an immoral, ungodly man in the 1980s. And God in his grace used a gal by the name of Lisa to open my eyes to the reality of who Jesus is. And notice what Peter writes this, but you are a chosen people. You are elect. You've been chosen by God. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. They knew it. They knew that Abraham was their forefather. And they would they would relish the fact that they were God's chosen people. They knew that they were going to be in heaven. They knew that they were going to be with God. They knew that they were going to be a part of the resurrection because they knew that God had chosen them because of his love for them. And what they could do is they could look back to the Old Testament and they could point and say, listen, this is how I know that I'm chosen. Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Notice what Moses writes about their identity as God's people. 
It says this, to the Lord your God belong the heavens and the highest heavens, the earth and everything. And I know that God is transcendent. God is up there. He's the creator of all things. But notice what else he says. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he loved them and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Why did God choose the nation of Israel? Because they were better? God chose the nation of Israel because he set his affection on them. And he pulled them out of Egypt and he pulled them away from Pharaoh. And he took with them through the, uh, the desert for 40 years. And he loved them and he cared for them and provided for them in a wonderful, mighty way. It was God's grace and action given to the people in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah, read the prophet Isaiah, a rebellious people. The prophet Isaiah was writing to a people who are getting ready to reject the Lord, to turn away from him. And notice what Isaiah the prophet writes in Isaiah chapter 43. Notice his description again about their identity as God's people. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. God loved and provided for the people of Israel. Go back and take a look at it. And now we have this idea that God's purpose for the nation of Israel, that they would be able to sing his praise, that they would be able to live in such a righteous way that other people would see and recognize that God, Yahweh God, is the one to whom they were to bow the knee to. He says, listen, you are like God's chosen people from the Old Testament. So how does that terminology, God's chosen people, relate to us nowadays. What would Peter mean? I think it means this, that when you look at Peter's writing, what's permeated from beginning to end is the idea that we have been chosen by grace to love and honor Jesus for who he is. Over and over, Peter knows and recognizes that his life has absolutely been transformed and changed by God's calling in his life. He knew that he had been chosen. He knew that he had been called. He knew that Jesus stood with him in the ups and downs of life. He knew that Jesus restored him. He was chosen by God to take the message of Jesus to the world. And so he begins this letter in verses 1 and 2 with these words. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect chosen ones. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's how he begins this letter. And notice how he ends this letter. Again, this idea of chosenness. Chapter 5, verse 13 says that she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. What Peter knows and recognizes here in his life and what he's writing to these people is this idea that they have been called, they've been chosen by God's grace to embrace him as the Messiah, to trust him as the Messiah, and to put their faith and trust in him in such a way to be an example of what it means to express God praises and to point people ultimately to the light of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that it is by for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one should boast. And so what it means is this, that I, some 30 plus years ago, God opened my eyes to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ so that I could put my faith and trust in him. And I was chosen by God. And if you are in God's family, if you are trusting in Jesus by faith, you are a part of God's family and you're a part of what it means to be a child of God. So what gives us our identity is this, not my skin color, not the culture, not your church, 
not how much you give. It's not what you do. It's not the fact that, that we're chosen over here and chosen over here, and we're all these separate groups, that we're the black chosen, we're the Asian chosen, or the, or the white chosen, or the, any one of those. We are chosen by God to put our faith and our trust in him so that we would become the people of God. And what that means is rather than separate ourselves into all of these categories, all of those walls that have been put up by humans are being broken down by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not separated by all of those things. We're not separated by skin color. We're not separated by gender. We're not separated by economics. We're not separated by any of those things. That means this is we are part of the family of God and those walls have been brought down because God chose us in grace to reflect his honor and to reflect his glory. Which means this, that I should look around and see that the way that I operate in the family of God and the way that I operate with other people, the way that I look at them, what I think about them should be entirely different. I don't look down at people. I look at them as people bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, chosen by God to honor and glorify him. Peter says that you, by grace, have been chosen. Notice what else he says. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Again, he's pointing them back to the Old Testament, what it meant to be a priest. There's no doubt the priest had certain functions of certain things that, that they could do at that particular point in time. But what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy is reminding them of their chosenness. He's reminding them that God has done something absolutely wonderful. They have this exalted position in the Old Testament because of the fact that they are God's children. And if you look at Exodus chapter 19, you see what they saw and what they knew about themselves and about what God had done in their life. Notice what Moses writes to the people about their identity as a nation. He says, now if you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God's original intent for the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, was that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that they would represent Yahweh to all of the world as God would pour out their blessing upon them as a people, as they saw him, as they worshiped him, as they followed him, then they would be able to be a blessing to all of the other nations around them. So how does that relate to us in this community of faith? Do you see yourself as a royal priest, that you bear this type of royalty, that you're a co-heir with Jesus, that you're going to reign with Jesus? You ever been treated in a special way like royalty? Maybe treated in a way that was different? Laura and I, when we flew to Seattle a couple of months ago, something happened to us that's never happened before us before. We got to fly first class. Now, we didn't do this. This was not of our doing. My dad actually surprised us. He says, by the way, check your email. And I'm checking my email. I'm like, I don't know why am I checking. Why am I checking my email? I finally, oh, he put us in first class. I'm like, well, okay. And you know what's cool about first class? You don't have to pay for your bags. I felt pretty good. Then they call you up front, and you walk by everybody else, and you're, you're walking right in. Man, I'm feeling pretty good. Then you sit down, and there's a little water thing there, and they got a little food there for you. Oh, I'm really feeling good. You got this big old seat. Man, Laura and I are looking at each other. Man, we're feeling good. They give you a meal, a meal. We had to order the meal in advance. You get a meal in first class. You have this person there, this gal or guy who's there to attend you. Whatever you want, you get it. I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then we land and I got to get off the plane. And I'm back to just being plain old Clint. But think about it. That's the point. The point is, I am who I am, not because I'm in first class and because I pay for this and I do this and I'm doing all these external things. I'm a priest because of what Jesus has done for me. 
I stand before you a priest because of what Jesus has done for me in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, you have been given every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies because of what Jesus has done for you. Do you realize that? Do you recognize that? Do you understand the power that you have in Jesus? Yeah, I'm in first class, but not because of somebody paying my ticket. I'm in first class because of what Jesus did in going to the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice for my sin. And I bear the idea of being a royal priest before him. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible? I'm a chosen person. I'm a priest. And then Peter goes on and he writes this. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. A holy nation. What it means is this. I want you to be separate. I'm going to give you the laws. I'm going to give you the commands. I'm going to give all of these things to you, the rules and regulations. I'm going to guide and direct you in such a way so that you can live and be a testimony. You are separated from all of the other nations in your behavior. You are separate. You're holy because of who I am and what I've done for you. And as you go into the promise and as you take this, line, don't get caught up in what all of the other nations are doing. Be separate. Be holy. Be what we have called you to be is what he would write. And that's what they would understand. That's what the people in the Old Testament would understand. Getting ready to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Notice what Moses writes to the people. He says, listen, when you go into the land, be different. Be set apart. Be holy. This is what he writes. See, I have taught you your decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear all about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way that the Lord your God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Did you hear how God wanted the people to interact. He says, listen, live in such a way that your behavior becomes a light to all of the other people in all of the other nations around you. As I pour out my blessing in you, as you follow this covenant, as you follow these laws, as you walk in obedience to me, as you do all of these things, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing to all of the other people. And they would see that and recognize that there's something different about God. I think there's a classic example of this with the Queen of Sheba. First Kings, First Kings, it talks about what the Queen of Sheba wanting to come and have an audience with Solomon because she'd heard about all of these wonderful things about Solomon. He'd heard all of these wonderful things about the nation and what God had done. And so she says, listen, I've got to come and check this out. And that's what she does. And she sits and has an audience with Solomon. First Kings chapter 10, hear these words. This is what she says. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you. And hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed on you the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. The queen saw the blessing that the Lord had been to all of these people, to Solomon. And she saw and wanted to see and experience this, and she wanted to have an audience. And Solomon became a testimony, his life. The nation of Israel became a testimony to God's goodness and God's grace in their life. God wanted them to be a holy nation set apart. So how does this idea, this Old Testament terminology, how does this idea of a holy nation relate to you and I? How does it relate to First Peter? I think it relates this way. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says this, Be holy because I'm holy. You know where Peter gets that? The book of Leviticus. In other words, he's recognizing that in the person of Jesus, there's not this separation. There's this continuity between the Old Testament and the New. There's this continuity between holiness and where they were at. So in 1 Peter, he says, listen, be holy because I am holy. And when you look at what Peter writes, you see the idea of holiness. You see the idea of the separateness. You see it reign true in his life and what he would want from the people of God. Listen to the implications and what Peter writes about how they were to be separated and to be holy. In John chapter 17, verse 11, they refer to God being a holy father. That's the implications of our faith, the implications of his holiness. John chapter 17, verse 11 talks about a holy father is the implication for our life. Jesus in the gospel of Mark is called the holy one of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The men who went before us were called holy prophets. There were holy apostles. The women who went before us, they are called holy women. We are surrounded by holy angels. We read the holy scriptures. We live a holy faith. We are to embrace each other by what? A holy kiss. One day we will live in the holy city of Jerusalem with the triune God. We are God's holy people, and we are to be separate because we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he talks about. We've been purchased by something that was precious, the blood of Jesus Christ. And because our salvation, we've been redeemed from our sin. We are cleansed, and you and I are to live holy lives, separate lives. So when people look at us and they see that we're different, yeah, yeah, we're different. Because I'm not going to go the way of the culture. I'm not going to go this way. I'm going to live and I'm going to try to do my best to be holy as the Lord has called me to be holy. I'm going to be separated. And so my life's going to be different in the things that I say, the things that I do, the way that I conduct my body, the way that I conduct my relationship. Yeah, it's going to be different. It's going to be very, very different because God has called us to be a holy people. So we, by God's grace, have been chosen We, by God's grace, possess this royalty, if you will, this royal priesthood. We, by God's grace, are set apart to be holy. And finally, he says this, God sets his affections upon us. Look again at verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. We belong to the Lord. It implies ownership, if you will. You know, there's a sense where my wife owns me. 1 Corinthians talks about that. I don't own my body, my wife, because of this marriage relationship, because this one flesh relationship. She kind of owns my body and I own her. Not in an evil way, but in the sense that we possess this one flesh relationship. And, and when I'm going to do whatever I can to, to please her and to honor her. And the Bible says that, that, that God has stamped his approval on us and we belong to him, if you will. The, the word belonging has this idea of, of, of a circle. There's this circle, and in, in it's we are in the middle of it. And in, in God has, has drawn this circle around us, and he's protected us. Why? Because we belong to him. That's what the idea means, this idea of I, I belong to the Lord for who he is and what he's done. And he's purchased me. He's purchased my salvation through the precious blood of Jesus. And I belong to him. Listen, you may not belong anywhere else in the world. Now, maybe you're an outcast at work. Maybe you're an outcast at school. Maybe your own family has walked away from you because of your faith. Maybe you feel all alone. You're not alone. The Bible says, listen, I chose you by God's grace. You're a royal priest, and you belong to me. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. And I love you, and I care for you. And they could look back on the nation of Israel and how God protected and took care of the nation of Israel. And now no one understand that based upon what God had done in the past, there's this continuity through the blood of Jesus and through what Jesus has done for us that we now belong to him. We are protected by him. 
Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that about the church? Well, what do you believe about the church? What do you believe about your family and friends in the church? There's a gal by the name of Elsie Fitzpatrick, and she wrote a book because he loves how Christ transforms our daily life. And she makes an interesting parallel with this idea of identity, our identity in Christ, and identity theft. Listen to what she writes. She says, just in case you're unaware, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by this new cyber age crime, and we wouldn't assume that the theft of another person's identity is acceptable behavior. The surprising reality, however, is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they've taken the identity of someone else, the Christ. Not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you're invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits that belong to this new identity. This is so much more than identity theft. This is an identity gift. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, my identity has radically been changed. And I possess all of the wonderful blessings that are given to us in Jesus. And that's who I am in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? I believe there's three implications for this new identity that we have. And maybe by way of application, there's three things that we can think about and contemplate when we look at our identity and what we have in this new position of Jesus. The first one is this. Because of your identity, there's no other priest. You don't have to go through anyone else to have immediate access to God. In other words, it doesn't matter where you're at, you can call and cry out to the Lord through the throne of grace. We can approach the throne of grace with bold. I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to go through anybody else. I have immediate access to the Lord. And just like that gal at the beginning, when she called and cried out to the Lord, we can call and cry out to the Lord any moment in time. We have immediate access to him because of our new identity. The second thing is this. You and I are always in the presence of the Lord. You know, it's not I'm in the presence of the Lord because I'm in church or I'm in the presence of the Lord because I'm over here praying. No, no, I'm always in the presence of the Lord and who I am in my identity. It goes with me no matter where I go, whether I'm driving in my car or whether I'm meeting with my family, whether I'm going to school. My identity is a part of who I am and I represent Jesus no matter where I go. Romans chapter 12. Spiritual sacrifices. We're offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord for who he is and what he's done for us. And the last implication, because of this new identity, is this. That we're a priest to those who are lost. You represent the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to people who are lost. God has called you to be that priest. God has called you to be that agent to those around you who do not possess this kind of identity. How do we know the challenges that Peter was writing to? How do we know that they're not any different than what you and I be, may be experiencing? Because when you look at 1 Peter, he's, he's writing to spouses who had unbelievers as a spouse. They had unbelievers in their family. He's writing to people who were enduring harsh treatment because of the things going on in their life, because of their ultimate faith and trust in Jesus. People who have been wrongly accused of certain types of behavior because of their faith and living for Jesus Christ. They were facing persecution. They were facing all of these things. And what Peter wanted to remind them is, listen, don't forget. You're scattered You're out there, you're doing all of these things, but don't forget your identity. Because when you are in Christ, it doesn't matter where you go, he is right there with you. And you are a mighty 
powerful force for the cause of Christ. So see how that new identity should change our minds, should change our thinking, should change our behavior? Let me ask you, what do you dwell on? What do you dwell on? And when you're sitting there late at night and you're driving in your car, are you reminding yourself of who you are and what Christ has done? Are you filling your mind and your heart with the things of the Lord and who Jesus is? Or are we allowing the culture and all of those other things dominate our thinking? Because it will change you as a person. You know, it's been interesting to see what's happening in our culture the last couple of weeks and how people are giving schools and teachers and students time off for mental health issues. And when you look at some of the things that are going on in our culture and our society, talking about mental health issues, and a golfer by the name of Bubba Watson, all of these mental health issues coming to the forefront. In other words, people are trying to figure out, how do I put all of this stuff together? And I think one of the solutions for us, one of the solutions is to remind us who we are in Jesus and what he's done for us. I don't have to perform anything, but this is what Christ has done for me in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. This new identity should change the way that we act. And that's what Peter gets at in verse 10. Notice what he says, and then we're done. Why did he go through this whole idea of your new identity in Jesus? Verse 10 says, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Called you out of darkness. Think about darkness. The darkness of my past. My past was ugly. The darkness of my present at that particular time. In other words, I was in this darkness and I wasn't going to get out. In other words, I was going to live in this darkness. I was going to continue down this road of darkness until eternal darkness. I've been called out of that kind of darkness into his marvelous light. The light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus. The beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You cannot read the Gospels and who Jesus is, what he's done, and not go, wow, who was this guy? The way that he loved, the way that he cared, the miracles that he did, the direction that he took people to. You see the light of Jesus all around him. And that's why people wanted to be around him all of the time. And what you and I are now called, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Declare means of this. You are now an advertiser. Every once in a while I drive home, and when I exit the highway, there's somebody on the side of the road on the corner, and they have that sign advertising a sale that's going on one. That's the thought here. Declare has this idea of you and I are advertisers of God's praise for what he has done for us. It's life, death, burial, and resurrection. But you have a new identity, but you once were this, but you were once. Your identity has radically been altered because of Jesus. And that's what he wants us to live in. And that's what he wants us to remember, that at the core of our faith is who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. I want to end with this illustration. There's a book, The Pastor. It was written by Eugene Peterson. And in the book, he describes kind of like a pastor's wife and what that might look like. Well, this guy read the description of what the pastor's life would have looked like in the church. And he looked and he goes, you know what? That's a great description of the pastor's wife. But also, maybe that's a beautiful description of what the church really looks like. So he changed the, the wording. And I just want to read that to remind us of, of who we are. This is what he says. Being a church member is a vocation. It's a way of life. It means participation in an intricate web of hospitality living at the intersection of human need in God's grace, inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed or neglected children are noticed while the stories of Jesus are told and people who have no stories find that they have stories, stories that are part of the Jesus story. Being a church member places us strategically, yet 
unobtrusively at the heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and hell. That's who we are. That's why we are here. That's why God has called us. And that's a part of who we are as God's people. So we don't look down at other people. That's why we pray for each other and that's why we care for each other. Because hopefully this is a safe spot. Hopefully this is a safe place where you can come and your soul can be refreshed. Not because of us, but because of who Jesus is. Father, thank you for your goodness. Father, thank you for your transforming power. Father, I know most of the people in here, they put their faith, they put their trust in you. And Lord, we just thank you for that. Thank you that we are a new creation, that we have our identity in Jesus. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here just struggling in life right now, Father, that you would encourage them, that you would remind them of who they are in Jesus. Over and over, Paul wrote about what it means to be in Christ. We are in Christ, and I thank you for that. Yes, we may be scattered, we may be out there, we may be persecuted, but we ultimately are in Christ. And I thank you for that wonderful, beautiful identity. Father, I thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.